CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy to have all of you with us uh, for another show. I want to get right to our panel, because if I don't get right to the panel, I'm going to comment on that NPR story about Squid Game, which my wife, Janice, and I watched over the weekend. All I, could, I guess I am going to say it. All I can say is I thought, she and I both thought, it was dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> and so ultraviolent, please, please spare yourselves. <laughs> okay, I said it. Greg Bluestein is with us as he is on Wednesdays, the political reporter, one of the political reporters for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Greg? I'm great, but I have not watched Squid Game yet, so I might not. It, oh, it's just so ultraviolent for violence sake. I, 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 I'll be quiet now. Um, I saw a very dramatic black and white photograph of you pop up on social media this morning, Greg. Is that a picture of you for your upcoming book? Oh, is that out there yet? Uh, no, I'm part of a new press on campaign um, for oh. the AJC's uh, publicity thing. And yeah, so yeah. I guess that's out. Um, I haven't seen that yet, yet, but they took a bunch of pictures of me looking... Like I mean, business. <laughs> yeah, you, you look you, you look very very somber. People can see it if uh, on on Instagram, uh, among other places. I think um, we are also joined today by Renee Alegria, the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, which is uh, one of the primary sources of news and other content for uh, Hispanic Americans. How are you, Renee? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on, as always. As uh, we were talking before the show, you were telling me how busy you've been. This is Hispanic Heritage Month, and you say you've just been out there doing lots of activities around it, yes? Well, yeah, it's it's fall, so, you know, I think everybody's out there doing their thing, but uh, certainly it seems as though uh, when the uh, marketing and uh, nation, government, whatnot, says come and speak and uh, and, you know, Please talk to us about what it means to be Hispanic in America. You know, it's, it's our duty, certainly mine, to, to do that. So it's been nonstop. <laughs> okay. Well, we're really glad you could take the time uh, to be with us today. Terry Inolowitz, Representative Terry Inolowitz, Democrat, who represents Smyrna and areas around Smyrna up there uh, uh, north of the city of Atlanta. Terry is going to sing for us now. A couple of verses from Uncle John's Farm, because last night she was at the Grateful Dead concert at Lakewood. Terry, thanks for coming in uh, to be with us, uh, even though you were up late. Thank you. And to be clear, I was at the Grateful Dead concert because I love my husband very much. And he is a big Grateful <laughs> Dead fan. And the bigger action was actually happening here in the district in HD42, where the Atlanta Braves moved on to the next level of the playoffs and we're very happy yeah, about that uh, too yeah it's been a huge sports week for uh, georgia we're actually going to talk a little about that uh, toward the very end of the show leo smith is back with us today as well a republican political consultant and also the founder and uh, are you president or ceo of engaged futures uh, uh leo which is the title the chief bottle washer, so all things, right? CEO and president. Okay. 
right. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, Greg, let's get right to it. Um, we know that uh, Superior Court Judge Brian Amaro has been dealing with a case uh, brought by plaintiffs who are, uh, are, are asking the court to allow for a, the recount, the examination of all of the absentee ballots counted in Fulton County, um, saying that there were counterfeit, that they've, they've had um, uh, reports uh, and affidavits from Republican election workers in last year's election who claim they saw pristine ballots with perfectly filled in ovals, no fold lines, all of which they said pointed to the fact that these were uh, counterfeit ballots. Um, Amaro initially ruled that the case couldn't go forward against Fulton County Election Board itself, but now the plaintiffs are suing the Democrats on the board, hoping to get them dismissed so that Republicans who are favorable to an examination of the ballots can uh, move forward with it. Uh, But what is the Secretary of State's investigation found about those alleged uh, counterfeit ballots? Yeah, election investigators found no evidence, no no counterfeit ballots among batches identified by the Republican group. Um, They reviewed 1,000 absentee ballots from batches in Fulton County that allegedly contained these so-called pristine ballots, and every single ballot in those batches was legitimate. Uh, the uh, one of the attorneys with the, uh, with the with the state attorney general's office said that the secretary's investigators have not uncovered any absentee ballots that match the descriptions uh, given by the, the the folks seeking that lawsuit. So again, this is yet another blow to the attempts by the pro-Trump crowd to overturn the election, and um, this is this is one of the more dogged conspiracy theories that has once again been debunked. Well, but we should say that Judge Mero is still going to hear from both sides in this uh, probably next month, I think, to determine whether uh, they can bring suit uh, with, uh, you know, to dismiss the Democrats and and, uh, let the Republicans call for the recount. But, Leo, um, one of the people who filed an affidavit was a Republican uh, worker who said she she had she identified specifics. She identified box five, batches twenty eight through thirty six, as containing these uh, so called counterfeit ballots. None of the ballots in those batches matched what she said about them. And then she said, "Well, I think it may have been a different batch." And she then named specifically a different batch. It turns out that batch doesn't even that box doesn't even exist, Leo. <laughs> Yeah, the beautiful thing about our system is that we do value citizen engagement, and she's obviously taking great advantage of it to let this thing just go on and on and on and on. And, you know, a lot of Republican grassroots activists who are involved in the the Stop the Steal movement, uh, they believe that affidavits are evidence, and they think it's enough to just keep putting this out there to keep engendering the uh, distrust and uh at some point, you know, we have to have other Republicans saying, hey, just, you know, stop this. Let's move on and get ready for 2022. Yeah, I, I, I sure. I, I, I mean, look, it, it's it's very disheartening that we're talking about this still. Right. But it is part of the overall strategy and agenda to discredit, as Leo rightly said, the political process. I mean, we, we saw what happened in Arizona with the cyber ninjas and, you know, how that just landed with a thud. Um, That didn't stop 
this slow burn of 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 uh you know dis, dis, discrediting the process and 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 that I think is a, is something that we should we should take note of it and be alarmed of. I think that we should all you know I think it we're we're all we're all tired of of hearing this right. I mean the the proceedings the the bogus claims the misinformation, but it is eroding what is our faith in a process that we should hold to the highest esteem and that we should not just kind of brush under the rug. Terry. So we'll say this again, and we've said it before. There was no voter fraud in Georgia. There was not any widespread voter fraud in Georgia. There was not voter fraud here and there. There were not any suitcases full of ballots. We can say with certainty now there were no stacks or reams or boxes or batches of quote unquote pristine ballots that were placed by who knows who with nefarious purposes. These things simply did not happen. The voter fraud indisputably does not exist. And what's fascinating about this particular person this, you know, who, who claims she witnessed this, these pristine ballots, she's running for Congress. And having witnessed this voter fraud is basically her entire platform. And so, you know, there, she, she said, well, maybe it's this other batch. And of course, we know, as Bill said, that batch doesn't exist. There's nothing there. There's nothing to this. It has been proven again and again and again. The Trump campaign, these Republican activists like Garland Favorito have withdrawn or had case after case after case dismissed. There's nothing there. And to continue to have this, this rhetoric, to, to continue to perpetuate this myth of voter fraud, as Renee said, it only serves to continue to undermine the confidence that people have in voter integrity. And I think that that is going to be very troubling and problematic if that continues going into the 2022 elections. Greg, um, we've said it time and time again on this show. Every time we talk about these allegations of uh, uh, corruption in the election, fraud, um, it in the long run, the question is whether this puts a damper on Republican enthusiasm for wanting to vote at all in uh, elections. If this continues, if if uh, Donald Trump keeps up his diatribes about election fraud, if members of the Georgia legislature, Republicans who have supported those allegations keep talking, uh, the question becomes, what will that mean for Republicans next year? Exactly. Whether these mixed messages of go vote in a rigged election continue to dog Republican candidates. And look, we certainly saw Democrats did their part in the January runoffs by keeping their coalition together, but they're also helped by the fact that Republicans did not do their part in that sense, right? They, they did not, they were not unable to keep their conservative coalition together in the same way. You saw tens of thousands of, some of the highest proportions of undervoting of, of Republican vote drop-off were in Northwest Georgia and South Central Georgia, two of the areas that Donald Trump held rallies where he talked about uh, rigged elections and, and, and spouted all these falsehoods about Georgia's election. So this continues to, to, to um, strike fear in the hearts of Republican leaders here in Georgia, frankly, who worry that the same thing could be going on next year. Leo? And look, you know, for equal time, I think it's really important. You know, I recall, you know, Mark Meese has reported many times with the AJC that there have been many claims that say fair fight also 
um, presented to the courts that the judge rule were unbased un, un and that, that there was no basis for those claims um, from Fair Fight Action and, and Stacey Abrams. Republicans see this as, you know, we're doing what they did, but we're doing it at the extreme level because they were wrong. We're going to be super wrong. You know, the, the splinter in my eye becomes a plank in yours. Um, and, and that's kind of what's happening here. And we really do need to acknowledge that, but say that both are wrong. So, uh, Leo, I assume you're referring to Stacey Abrams, who, in saying she understands that Brian Kemp was going to become governor in 2019, uh, refused to concede the election. That's what you're referring well, to when you say Democrats did it first? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but, you know, of course, like, for instance, you know, she made several very broad voting rights lawsuits um, to make, you know, changes well back in, in 2018. And in those cases, uh, I remember one case was U.S. District Court Steve Jones, where he threw out many of uh, their, their claims. The point is, Republicans were really paying attention to that. They were pointing out that there were claims made by progressives and Democrats about voter fraud that were not true. And so they're doing it the same thing. They're just doing it at an extreme level. I, I, Terry, I, of course, uh, Fair Fight and other uh, organizations who uh, wanted Stacey Abrams to be like a governor went to court on a number of issues. They also came to the legislature. And in fact, you and Republicans in the legislature approved some voter changes as a result of 2018. I, I have to admit, I'm not as familiar with what Leo's talking about when he says Democrats claimed a lot of voter fraud in 2018. I am less familiar with that also. I, I, I can tell you and I can affirm that, yes, the voting machines and the voting process that we used in this past election was the voting machines and the voting process that the Republican, the Republican majority in the General Assembly voted to put into place. So these voting machines that everyone voted on, but now all these Republicans are saying had all these frauds, are the voting systems that the Republicans wanted in place. And talking about these claims, Georgia is not unique to this kind of litigation, right? We've seen lawsuits from Republicans and from Trump supporters all over the country. And one thing that perhaps some of these judges might want to consider in Michigan, this happened, but the court held the lawyers and the plaintiffs in contempt for filing false claims, and they ordered them to pay all fees in these cases. I mean, we are, again, these cases keep coming. These cases keep being dismissed or withdrawn because there is no evidence. And it might be something for the court to consider in Georgia. Greg, one last comment on this before we move on. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of this um, this sort of uh, equivocating between Donald Trump and Stacey Abrams going into 2022. And um, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger just did it in a, in a column in USA Today where, where he, he drew a line between Donald Trump and Stacey Abrams. Um, you know, look, the, the big difference, though, and this is something that, that Leo is well, well, well aware of and we all lived through, was Stacey Abrams did not try one of the big differences, I should say, because there's a lot. But Stacey Abrams didn't try to uh, subvert the outcome of the election. She didn't try to lobby officials to, to overturn the election results, didn't call the secretary of state, who at the time was, was still Brian Kemp, and try to get him to, to, to reverse the outcome. Right. She said that one of her main arguments was, hey, let's wait until all these absentee ballots can come in. There was questions about some provisional ballots um, during that 10 days of purgatory. Um, and, and one of the main rallying cries was wait, wait to call the race until all the ballots are counted. 
So there are lots of differences. I just wanted to point out that's one of the main ones. She did not try to subvert the will of the, okay. uh, of the Georgia voters there. She never formally challenged the election results in court. She just didn't. She just never conceded. Um, we, we should say, um, Renee, on the other side of this, um, uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger has now gone to the Department of Justice and said, um, you need to investigate why two Fulton County election workers were fired summarily because they were caught shredding some 300 um, ballot uh, requests for a voter registration. Not ballots, not even absentee ballot requests, but they wanted to register and they did it on paper. There's been no really good explanation for why these uh, 300 or so registration requests were um, uh, shredded, but Ravensburger now says DOJ should look into it. Look, I, I, I think that we can go back and forth and back and forth of, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans, uh, you know, 300 shredded documents, uh, you know, Cyber Ninjas Arizona. I mean, it, the list is endless at this point, right? And what it is doing still is sowing mistrust of what we hold so dear, which is our political process. If we don't isolate and focus on what we need to do, which is become engaged, vote, get our fellows, fellow you know, citizens to vote. We're going to be a, a lost society. I, I, I keep thinking about how you see these videos of these school board meetings where it just looks like a roller derby event, right, of anger. And those are probably both sides are individuals that feel left out of the process that did not plug into our political process and look where that anger is being vented onto you know the poor teachers and the education system that doesn't need that kind of ire so you know i think let's let's float above it let's take a look at the bigger picture and and try to assess reality from what's not Okay, um, we'll follow that vote, that registration shredding story or that request for registration story as it moves forward. But we really don't know enough about it to say much about what happened there and why. Um, Greg, let's move on to a local election. We know that early voting is underway in uh, municipalities and jurisdictions across the state, including Sandy Springs, where they are electing a mayor, uh, Rusty Paul running for re-election, and Dante Carter uh, an African-American candidate running for uh, mayor in that race. He uh, has told one of your colleagues that he has been the victim of racist threats or what he perceives to be racist threats, saying that his um, family has been threatened. Um, he says that his three-year-old daughter was uh, smeared in some way in at least one of the emails. And there are five African-Americans running for city council up there, and uh, they too say that race is playing a role as their opponents uh, 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 try to win those, those races. Yeah, this goes to what Renee was saying about how school board meetings have become you know, increasingly polarized. I mean, this is something that should not be partisan whatsoever, right? Um, but we've heard from, especially in Florida, we've heard from school board members who have been targeted, threatened, harassed, followed home, intimidated, all these different horrible things are happening because of their stances on, on how to handle the coronavirus um, pandemic. 
But in, in Georgia, we're seeing it play, play out in different ways as well, you know, with candidates for local races that would, would fly under the radar. Um, and and it, partly it's because some of these local races are becoming more partisan. Um, and it's not an indictment on, you know, it's it just, it just the way it is, where um, Dante is running um, as, a, as a liberal against uh, Rusty Paul, who's the former head of the Georgia GOP. And so these races become a little bit more partisan and they, and they, and they draw out um, some, of the, some of the anger in the community, but also be, because he's a black man running for uh, in a majority white district in a majority white city. So I think um, it, it brings out some of the racist elements uh, in society, even if they don't live in Sandy Springs, who are just tuning into the things he's saying. And it, it's, it's scary and it, and it concerns me as a citizen about who's going to raise their hand and step forward for running for school board, for running for city council, for running from these you know, not so premier races that are super important and have, and, and have a huge impact on our lives if the people running are going to face this, this sort of targeted harassment. Uh, Leo, a resident in Sandy Springs took a screenshot of a post in a private uh, Facebook group called the uh, North End Sandy Springs Improvement Coalition, and the post focused on the mayoral candidate, uh, Carter, and a candidate for city council, Melody Kelly, an African-American. Um, it was a 258-word post, according to the AJC piece on this, which claimed the two candidates were, quote, dangerously unqualified and would negatively impact business and police morale, and if elected, crime would increase. Um, now, you could see that as being a standard attack, or you could see it as a racist trope. It is a standard attack if you follow politics and you're not new to the blood sport, <laughs> because politics is a blood sport. Um, this is expected. Those candidates should expect this in such a vitriolic environment that we have. Um, when you enter a race like this where wedge issues like vaccination are, you know, the tool that raises money and gets you attention, you kind of have to go with it. And so just, you know, not being cynical and not being uncaring, you know, racism is real and it hurts. Um, Mr. Carter and the other candidates are going to have to see how they can engender support for them, even using this situation, because until now, a lot of people never heard of Mr. Carter, but they do now. Uh, they do know who he is now. Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, uh, Terry, part of the problem is that apparently a number of the opponents um, uh, of the uh, uh, African-Americans in the race are trying to cite Buckhead crime and saying they're concerned about it spilling into Sandy Springs, um, which does uh, lead people like the candidate Carter to say he does think these attacks are racist. 90% of his platform, he says, is his support for police and law and order. No, that's exactly right. You know, Mr. Carter has made absolutely no bones about the fact that he does support the police. He does support law enforcement. And I think that this is sort of also an example, you know, talking about the, the crime and the fear of crime. Crime is the issue on the ballot right now. Crime is going to be, I think, the issue on the ballot it, it, in 2022. It is certainly the issue on the ballot in the Atlanta mayoral race. And I think every candidate is aware of this. And where I think, what I think voters are hopefully looking for in Sandy Springs and Atlanta and elsewhere is you have candidates who are talking about crime in a way that is in many ways a racist dog whistle, and you have candidates who are talking about crime in a way 
that is actually substantive and they're talking about policy and they're talking about what their actual plans are for how they're going to ensure that they're in a safe community. We know that everybody wants to live in a safe community. Everybody wants to live in a safe neighborhood where you are, whether you are in Sandy Springs or Smyrna or Marietta or Atlanta or South Fulton or, you know, down in, in um, you know, Stockbridge, everybody wants to live in a safe community. And I think that that's something that, again, if you as a voter need to look at, okay, who's talking about crime in a way that is trying to make you fearful and who is trying talking about crime in a way that is trying to make you understand exactly what it is they're going to do to address the issue of crime. It's not unusual to have shenanigans in municipal races. I have run for municipal office three times in the city of Smyrna. There's always wackiness. There's always silliness. You know, somebody tried to start a rumor once that I was the niece of the, the, the incumbent mayor of Smyrna. There's random stuff, but it's taken a darker turn and, and it's taken a meaner turn. It's taken a much more racist turn in a way that I'm afraid is commensurate with how a lot of the rhetoric in the United States has, has really, has really taken, a, taken a turn over the past few years. And I hope that this voters in Sandy Springs can look at who's actually talking about policy. Uh, Renee, let me give you a chance to weigh in before I have to get to a break. Sure. I, I just, you know, one can't, it's been mentioned already, but one can't not make the parallel of what's happening with Buckhead wanting to become its own city. You know, the the history of Sandy Springs, you know, Atlanta was trying to annex Sandy Springs in the, in the 60s, you know, and, and there was a, a no-go on that. Um, until it incorporated, until in, in I think it was 2005 or, or six, um, but it's it's long been looked upon by many as you know being a kind of white flight community, and I do think that there is this great awakening that's happening uh, locally throughout the country of just how systemic racism does play a role in our daily lives, um, you know. Carter, the email, the, you know, him, him feeling threatened. That's real stuff that we, we, we shouldn't ignore. Um, you know, it, it kind of connects into critical race theory and how that's being talked about and used as a sword by both sides of, of the aisle right now. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's a period of time right now, this era where, you know, there are going to be folks that just aren't going to wake up and others that 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 have. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation. We got a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind, and we'll continue after we pause for this break. State Representative Terry Anulowitz, Mundo Hispanico's um, Renee Alegria, Republican consultant, uh, Leo Smith, and the AJC's Greg Bluestein join us for uh, today's show. Hey, Greg, uh, Herschel Walker is not doing po- too badly on fundraising. Um, it's reported that he raised in like the first five weeks of his campaign almost $4 million. That is a huge number for just five weeks uh, of the race. Um, and again, reminds us all why he's the front runner because he can immediately go out there and raise from tens of thousands of donors um, in all 50 states. And, and that's something that's really interesting to me because Republicans used to paint the Democrats as celebrity fundraisers who can go to California and raise a lot of money. But even this weekend, Herschel Walker is going to Texas. Well, it's, it's, it's where he used to live 
<laughs> but but he's, he's he's returning to his home native state of Texas um, to go raise money um, with with Hollywood producers uh, in a way that Democrats were once mocked for. So it shows you again that he's the front runner, but also that um, that Republicans have no problems raising money because Georgia is a premier battleground state, and there's going to be a ton of cash coming in from all all over the country in Georgia's races next year. Um, Leo, uh, we also know that Gary Black, the ag commissioner who's running for the office and who's gotten quite a few endorsements from, I think, what you would say are mainstream Republicans, people like Nathan Deal, um, he's raised something like $700,000 in uh, in the early fundraising. Uh, uh, Latham Sadler has raised pretty, done pretty well for a guy who wasn't in politics before, uh, really in elective politics, one4 million. Um, so Herschel is so far out front. The question is, is he just simply a prohibitive uh, victor in this race? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, in grocery stores, sometimes they have a loss leader, so a product that they're losing money on. Um, in this case, we have a gain leader, meaning a product that we know we're gaining money on in the electorate. The GOP, uh, David Schaefer, even went to Basically, what's considered somewhat an unethical rally when he went to that rally down in Perry that was with the Trump slate. Um, the, the party is not supposed to do that. But he went saying, well, Herschel Walker's in the mix. He's bringing a lot of money. And obviously, Herschel has proven that he's going to raise a lot of money to put in the field for Republican messaging. Terry? I wonder if these qualities that the Republicans are certain are going to propel Herschel Walker to victory in the Republican primary are the same attributes that might get him to victory in the general, and I don't think they are. Um, you know, they're they're banking on name recognition. They're banking on fundraiser. You know, the same article talks about how Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock has $10 million on hand right now that his most recent fundraising hall set records for, you know, non-election year fundraising halls. He is also a very formidable fundraiser. He also has a lot of name recognition in the state. And one of the things that I think is so striking about Warnock, and this is just something that I ruminate on, so he does have high name recognition in Georgia, but does he have high name recognition among the overall electorate? Like I, like many Georgians, I wasn't born here, right? Like I moved here 27 years ago. About one-third of the people and people who vote in Georgia right now also weren't born in Georgia. Herschel Walker was a football hero. I'm a middle-aged lady, right? I'm 45 years old. I was in preschool when he was running to glory on the, on, you know, between the hedges in Athens. <laughs> I don't know how relevant that necessarily is to bringing you and propelling you to victory in a general election, particularly when you are running against Senator Warnock, who has done a really exemplary and exceptional job of being a great senator and responding to the concerns of Georgia businesses and individuals. I, I think Terry is absolutely right. I think that Georgia has changed so much since when Herschel Walker was winning the Heisman, right? Obviously, there's an aura that he has of a you know, great football hero and a bygone era of what being a bulldog means in this state. But the state is more than just a bulldog, right? And I, I do think that, look, there's going to be a lot of money on both sides pouring in. It's what, whatever Walker is going to raise, Warnock is going to raise, and that's, there, there's, there's going to be parity there. 
ultimately it's going to come down to authenticity and the connection that a candidate has with why they're running for office in the first place. We saw Bloomberg, remember that fiasco, poured a billion dollars into a presidential run. He was a machine that just did not connect with any voters out there. And it was arguably the biggest folly campaign uh, in history. And it showed us that it's not just about money anymore. And I don't think that this is going to be the case. So, okay, that's I, it's fascinating to hear you all uh, give your take on, on how uh, popular uh, as, a, as, a, as a candidate he will be across demographic uh, lines, especially of, of age. But, but Greg and, and Leo, one thing we do have to say about the way he has started his campaign, at least, is while he is obviously Donald Trump's candidate for the U.S. Senate, um, in, in his brief appearances in public, he has he has pretty, in a pretty disciplined way, avoided falling into the Trump uh, rhetoric. He, he hasn't talked about fraud in the Georgia presidential election. He hasn't declared that Trump is actually still the president of the United States. He's uh, so far uh, not taken positions. Of course, the problem is he hasn't taken any positions to the best of our knowledge. But Greg, he's at least playing this in a fairly straightforward way, isn't he? Yeah, when he goes on conservative media, he will play into all that um, when he's yeah. on Fox News. But you're exactly right. He's, he's, he, I think what's driving this is the campaign strategy that he feels like he'll win the, the Republican primary without having to do all that because of his high name recognition, because of Donald Trump's endorsement, because of the money he's raising. So he doesn't need to go prove himself as an ultra conservative uh, instead. And just the other day, he, he posted some sort of fundraising video, but he talked about talking across the aisle and how we all need to communicate. It didn't, you know, it wasn't groundbreaking stuff, uh, but it's much the same that he had in his speech at Donald Trump's rally. You know, every other candidate who Donald Trump endorsed talked, you know, gave red meat, crowd-pleasing stuff. Well, Herschel Walker, and it got overshadowed by Trump's remarks, but Herschel Walker kind of stood up there and said how Republicans need to talk to Democrats and how they need, we all need to be talking together and we all need to be communicating. And to me, that really stood out as like this is sort of his strategy. If you can, if you can say there's an overall overall arching theme right now, that's it. That he's not uh, going headfirst into the same um, rhetoric that you hear his opponents going into, or the candidates for other down ticket races going into. Yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, I agree with uh, Greg wholeheartedly. I think that uh, his comments that we've seen um, as he tours have been almost like he's a friend of Democrats to the point where I'm sure that uh, one of his opponents is going to pick up on that in this primary and say, this guy sounds like he cares about Democrats more than he cares about Republicans. And right now in this environment that we are in, folks want people to be oppositional. Um, so he is depending on his likability as a Georgia Bulldog. And seems to me right now, yeah, Bulldogs do control the state. <laughs> Um, it, uh, and he's depending on that and not really talking about anything that's really Republican wedge issues right now. All right. Um, l let me move on to the Democratic side of politics for a minute in terms of the election next year. Greg, um, you and, and your colleagues who write The Jolt uh, filed a story the other day about Stacey Abrams being back on the stump. 
except not here in Georgia. Uh, among other things, he wrote that she was in Virginia campaigning for Terry McAuliffe, who, of course, is trying to win back his seat as governor of Virginia. Uh, so she's out there, uh, but we're still waiting to hear what the heck she's going to do about Georgia. And just on that national tour uh, that I visited back in Texas a few weeks ago. <clears throat> but look, this again shows you her her status in Democratic politics. It's a couple weeks out. And who is Terry McAuliffe going, 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 asking to help him? Stacey Abrams, of all people, right? Um, to help him generate African-American enthusiasm and votes um, the, a couple Sundays before the election. So shows her iconic sort of brand in the Democratic politics. Um, and again, like it still it keeps her coming up here, um, whether or not she'll run. You know, I believe she'll run. And, and, and most Democrats I talk to and most Republicans I talk to think she'll run. But look. You know, not a single Democrat has still raised their hand to get in that race. Um, so it's not like there's there's that much pressure on her right now that most most party leaders I talk to think she's going to run and expect her to run. And I'd say this, too, regardless, and Kemp's office also thinks she's going to run. But regardless of whether she runs or not, they're going to run against her. Right. You can already you can already see that down the ticket too. everyone is mentioning Republican candidates for dog catcher are mentioning Stacey Abrams. So uh, no matter who is on that ticket, it's going to be an anti-Stacey Abrams message you'll hear, much the same way that Leo was talking about earlier, radical socialists, those types of messages that used to used to always work in Republican politics did not work as well in 2020 and 2021 as we saw. But I'm, I, I will not be shocked if, if Republicans continue to use that sort of phrasing as radical socialists going into 2022. But Terry, you're a Democrat. Is there any impatience at this point about Stacey Abrams finally stepping forward? And and let me say that I'm wondering if it's more than just about her announcing she's running for governor. You want somebody who can be your party leader uh, to help consolidate the messaging that you're going to take into 2022. Every party wants that. And, and although... Uh, Abrams certainly is well known for her position on things like uh, on, on, on corruption in voting practices and the like, registering voters, that sort of thing. You're lacking that single voice to sort of move you forward into 2022, aren't you? We, I think the fact that she, we're talking about her right now indicates that she is still in every way really at, at the top of the Democratic ticket, whether or not she's officially announced her run for governor. And I do believe, I'm confident also that she is going to be running for governor on the Democratic ticket in Georgia. There shouldn't be any doubt among anybody that she is probably the most formidable campaigner and fundraiser in Democratic politics in the United States right now. And that's how she can be you know, doing her national tour she can be something for McAuliffe in Virginia. She can be, you know, at the top of the jolt in the AJC and a, and a topic of conversation on the, you know, the leading political radio show in, in Georgia right now. She can, she's able to do all of those things, and she's going to be able to, again, have that unifying message and vision for the party, just like she did when she was leading the Georgia House Democratic Caucus, just like she did when she was running for governor you know, in the last cycle. She's able to do all of those things. And I think at this point, anybody who has any doubt about what she's capable of probably hasn't been paying that close attention to her for the past few years because she's proven again and again that she is able to do all of those things, fundraise, lead the party, have the message, be at the top of the ticket. I mean, it is, it's, 
it's really unbelievable and it's really unique. And I don't know who the Republicans have in that role right now, other than Donald Trump, who I would not say is necessarily a party unifier right now with the GOP. All right. Um, Leo, real quick. Just real quick. I mean, she's doing Biden a favor. Biden hasn't uh, campaigned for McAuliffe since July. And he can't because his numbers are dropping so much with black voters that it would hurt McAuliffe. So she goes in there, the the goddess rescuer again, and she is going to do the work that Biden can't with black voters. Uh, Interesting comment. Thank you for that. All right. We've got to get to our final break of the show. Back with more in a moment. So we've got some breaking news as we do this show live on uh, Wednesday morning. Stephen Fowler, our political reporter, just tweeted out that the Favorito case, which we talked about at the top of the show, this uh, lawsuit to examine all the absentee ballots in Fulton County, has in fact been dismissed, as we, as many of the people on this panel suggested would happen when the Secretary of State's investigator said they saw no proof of any counterfeit ballots. So that's another case down for those who think fraud was what propelled Biden to win the election here in Georgia. Uh, Greg, real quick, we can't spend too much time in this right now, but we talked about Herschel Walker a couple of minutes ago back in the day when he, uh, as the greatest runner in football in those days, propelled Georgia to the number one spot in the nation and gave them the national championship. And your Bulldogs, Greg, are back at number one in the nation. And 538, which we look to for politics, says they not only have a great defense, they may have the greatest defense ever, Greg. Yeah, and I've been lucky enough to go to four of the Georgia games this year and only only witnessed one touchdown that the defense gave up in those four games. So that just tells you how, how good they are. Uh, they've only given up, I think, two offensive touchdowns, maybe three all season. Um, so they continue to be the standout. And I'll say this to tie it back to politics. Um, it's not like Herschel Walker's running away from his UGA roots. He's gone to a bunch of, um, a bunch of football games early on. They had a, they had a reunion of the 1980 uh, championship team at one of the early football games, the game against UAB, the, the home opener, um, because they couldn't do it last year because of the pandemic. So it, it's the, what, 40th anniversary, uh, 41st anniversary, I should say. So they all came back on the field. And everywhere you go in Athens, you're, you're likely to see a run Herschel run sticker that his campaign has been handing out. So he's tying it right back into it. Yeah, I got to say, this does not hurt his campaign at this point because he is going to get attention having been on that other championship team back in uh, 1980s. That's going to be kind of interesting to watch. But congratulations, Bluestein, because we know you are the ultimate Bulldog fan on Political Rewind. Um. Renee Alegria, I want to turn to Hispanic Heritage Month for just a couple of minutes, um, because at the start of the show, we said you've been especially busy dealing with uh, requests to do a variety of uh, speaking engagements and the like. First of all, just what is Hispanic Heritage Month about? I mean, it seems self-evident, but why don't you tell us what it means to you? Sure. I, listen, as, um, as the son of immigrants from Mexico to the United States, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month is always that time of the year where, you know, we kind of like stand up and look around and, and see the others who are contributing uh, into the general 
market culture who are also of Hispanic descent, who are also doing what they do in the best way they can. Um, and it makes us proud. It makes us proud to be acknowledged in the way that we we are in certain segments of the of the U.S. You know, we're, we're the majority. Um, you know, I, I, I myself was born and raised in the Southwest. And, uh, you know, I mean, the roots go so far deep and back to the to its Hispanic identity um, that it's it's always really fascinating to me to be in a place like Georgia, say, where we're just emerging as power players in this state politically, economically, culturally. So to see, you know, the spotlight shine with what we do in in this state particular uh gives us all a sense of pride and 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 uh, you know some energy about what the future beholds for our community you you grew up in arizona the son of a copper miner blue collar family and you grew up at a time when um the hispanics in arizona were not necessarily treated with enormous respect this was the uh, sheriff joe days in uh, arizona largely renee yeah, no, it it was not exactly the idyllic, uh, okay, happy Hispanic, you know, center of culture. There was uh, one side of town you could travel on and feel safe, and then another side of town where you could go, but you didn't exactly feel as safe. And, you know, the, the law enforcement and whatnot certainly reflected that. And, you know, that's that's the, the rubric of which I grew up and certainly cast my my lens in life and professionally. Again, to see it play out in so many ways in the same way throughout the country, though, just makes me think that, okay, our journey has really just begun. We have so much to achieve and accomplish and to change. And by just getting people to understand that we are here is something that I think uh, shifts the dynamic of dialogue, uh, particularly in the Southeast. Well, I want to talk about that. Before I move on to the panel, though, I want to point out that coming from Arizona, blue-collar family, father of copper miner, you now are the CEO of one of the most important digital platforms for Hispanics across the United States at Mundo Hispanico. So uh, you've done extraordinarily well, and we're always proud to have you as a panelist on well, this show. Uh, th- thank Renee. you. Believe me, I... I, uh, I... I think every every son or daughter of immigrants in the United States grew up with the pressure of we didn't move to America so you could watch Bug Bunny, you know, like <laughs> go study, go to work, you know. So I, I don't uh, think that Terry, I I think I'm not doing anything overachieving in my family. That's for sure. <laughs> well, t- Terry, uh, Hispanics, Asians, Americans, uh, African Americans, uh, it. it the electorate of Georgia is being transformed dramatically as people like you continue to run for election. Um, you know, how do you see this this transformation, which is going to make us a minority majority state? Well, I actually live in a minor, in a minority majority community. You know, Smyrna is actually Smyrna is one of the most diverse communities in in the state of Georgia. If you look at that map that the New York, you know that demographics map and that, that the New York Times has, and you can put in your zip code and you can look at your block. Smyrna, Smyrna represents, I think, where the rest of the United States is likely in the direction that we're moving towards. Smyrna is 47% white, and, the, and, and it is a mix of 
our black community, our Hispanic community, our Asian community. And so I've been living this, you know, in, in a diverse community like this for quite a while. And it's one of the reasons why I love living in Smyrna, why I love, you know, living in, you know, Cobb County is not this monolith where everything's like East Cobb, right? I mean, there, there was a lot of vibrancy, a lot of diversity here. We actually last weekend, uh, block up from my house in downtown Smyrna, they had the US West Smyrna celebration, which was a, a major celebration of culture, you know, film, food, music of the Hispanic community that we have here in Smyrna. And it's been wonderful to finally, you know, see this vibrancy moving forward in, in the in the eyes of the public and in visibility. Uh, Greg, um, I started covering politics in Georgia in 1983. And back then, if you wanted to find a Hispanic leader who would talk about politics, it was a hard thing to do. In those days, the Hispanic <laughs> community really felt, I think, that they needed to be cautious about how out front they uh, became. And, and, and so it was often very difficult to get people who would want to talk with you. God, boy, has that changed in, in this state. It really has, and I can kind of compare it to the aftermath of the Jewish community with the aftermath of Leo Frank, how, how many Jewish leaders kind of didn't want to, wanted to go under the radar for decades, and, and that changed as well. But look, yeah, look no further than uh, Brian Kemp's visit last week to the U.S. border with Mexico. I got inundated with, with local <laughs> civic leaders, Hispanic leaders, everyone who wanted to talk about what that meant to them and what that told them. So there is, there is an outpouring as, as the Hispanic community gained political clout. Their, their voices are going to rise as well. Leo, final word, Republicans have got to figure out how to expand the base to include those rising major- minorities. Well, and in fact, uh, Republicans are doing pretty well nationally. Hispanics have been jumping on in many ways. I mean, Texas is a great uh, example. Georgia uh, is not with that same trend, and that's mainly because the Georgia GOP hasn't had a minority engagement strategy. But the Braves do, Los Bravos. <laughs> and they, they celebrate a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Leo, Leo Smith, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for being here, uh, Leo. Uh, Renee Alegria, uh, Terry Anulowitz, Greg Bluestein. thank you two for a terrific conversation. I really enjoyed the chance to hear from you all on the topics we covered today. Of course, we're back with another show tomorrow. We're going to talk climate change. The U.N. Climate Conference is coming up in a couple of weeks. What are the issues they're going to be taking on? What does climate change look like, not just in this country, which we talk about a lot, but across the globe? We'll do that on tomorrow's Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Uh, stay healthy. Please wear your mask when you're around a lot of people, especially if you're indoors. Get your flu shot and start thinking, if you're like my age, about whether a booster is in your future for COVID. See you all tomorrow.